Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we are back. Finally, again. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we aren't much speedier in the summertime after all. Uh-huh. Yeah. Speedier is a relative term, though. Uh, <laughs> I'd just rather say we're back. Now it's too late. We said speedier and we're already recording. Uh, besides, <laughs> it's it's time to get into the spirit of the season. The weather's warm. The surf's up. I'm told the sun is shining somewhere other than New England, where we've had about a third of a deluge in the past few weeks. Ready to go. Hmm. Ready to go, huh? A third of a deluge. What is a third of a deluge? Uh, I'm going to say four showers to a storm, five storms to a deluge, ten deluges to a Noah. <laughs> Meteorology is not, uh, not just you making up scales of comparisons, John. <laughs> I think you know that. That doesn't make I any mean, sense. I mean, a surprising number of things in life do come down to arbitrary scales of comparison. Uh, besides, when I was a kid in New York City, the local weatherman was named Stormfield. This is actually true. Stormfield. Yeah. His father was Frank. Frank Field. Frank was also a New York meteorologist. It was like a father and son okay. team. Uh, so I kind of feel like if a meteorologist is allowed to be called Stormfield, I wouldn't put anything past them. This may be one of the worst beginnings to an episode we've had. <laughs> Good I job, said, John. We're already recording. And people need to know about Stormfield, Andy. Do that. Uh, but all right. Uh, so when we're not talking about mid-level local news celebrities of the past, we spend our time here at Saga Thing reading our way through the sagas of the Icelanders. And right now we're in the middle of Fosbrother Saga. The This is the third episode of our discussion of Fosbrother Saga. Or it's the second part of the second part of our discussion. I think no, that's no, another no, way of no, putting it. No, because that's a horribly confusing way to put it. Confusing, but accurate. It's accurate. Okay, this is the saga of two friends, Thorger Haverson and Thormod Bersesson. They're sworn blood brothers, but as Thorger became more and more unpredictable, Thormod decided to dissolve their partnership. Unpredictable is one way to put it. Yes. See, Thorger began speculating about which of them would win in a fight to the death. Thormod didn't see it coming. I'd call that unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyway, once the partnership broke up, Thorger kept their ship and continued adventuring, while Thormod went home and worked on his dad's farm. And the saga broke up too. A couple of chapters following Thorger, a few following Thormod, back to Thorger again. Yeah, and so that's why we've broken it up into two parallel stories. Mm-hmm. Last time on Saga Thing, we covered Thorger up until his reunion with Thormod, and this time we're going to talk about what Thormod's been up to during his hiatus from Thorger. And as we're going to see, the two brothers have been on totally different paths since they left each other. Right, and we sort of made up our own little bit of suspense with all this, because we ended the last episode with Thorger visiting Thormod's house to find Thormod with some damage to his eyes and a badly injured right arm. Yes, and whatever he's been up to, it hasn't been going entirely his way. No, Uh, and I don't think we need to go through what happened last time since it was happening at the same time as what's going on with Thormod. Oh, so, so we're going to delay that for the yeah, next episode. We'll just cover them both next time. Uh, okay. I think we can just get right to telling this story. What do you say? Well, I mean, if, you, if you're ready, I'm ready. Uh, you, you don't have any more little anecdotes about New York television market of the late 20th century? Uh, you want to share with the class something about UHF? Oh, perhaps? I, have a, I have a lot of those. Uh, <laughs> remind me to tell you about the WRWPIX rivalry sometime. Part 10, an unlikely yarn. So, after the partnership broke up, Thormod left Thorger with their ship and went home with the lion's share of their wealth. And he doesn't actually have an established home of his own, so he returns to his parents' farm and moves into the converted rec room in the basement. 
<laughs> Look, you know, it's a tough economy out there, and Thormod wasn't even all that great of a fisherman in the first place, especially True. without the great captain that Thorgir was, right? <laughs> you've been, but, you've been uh, drinking what, the Kool-Aid, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've read a lot of poems about him. He's uh-huh. apparently very good. No, but what looks like a, a temporary situation turns into a year, and then another, and another. And several years pass, and Thormoth is increasingly bored stiff by the limited company in the Lagobal region. Yeah, it's not a large community. Uh, but there is one promising farm not too far away. The farm of a widow named Grima and her daughter uh-huh. Thordis. We've heard Grima this one before. A, yeah, uh, Grima is a woman of wealth and great learning. And there are rumors around that she dabbles in what our author calls the ancient arts. This would be witchcraft. Yes. Because Grima is a witch. Although I don't know if she's Grima Witchface. No. Uh, By the way, um, can I just say, just because an older woman knows a few things and lives independently, people got to go and slap that witch label on her. They do, don't they? She she is. She is a witch. But it's still (laughs) a stereotype. You know, you, you mix a few herbs together, next thing you know. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Grima is a stock figure. Yeah. And as we said, this saga is moving into some recognizably well-trodden narrative paths. Yeah. The old mother with magical skill is one of the figures that we've seen in several other sagas already. And that's something we should talk about at some point. Sorceresses or literary motifs? I mean, either one, uh, you know, structuralism, literary motifs, symbolism. Sure. You know, whatever. Uh, but I was thinking more about the motifs. Uh-huh. Uh, let, let's get through this bit of story first. Uh, for the moment, Grima's incidental to Thormod's interest in the farm. It's Grima's daughter, uh, uh, Thordis, who's uh, just the sort to inspire attention from a romantic young man with time on his hands. Mm-hmm. And over time, Thormod goes from an occasional visitor to someone who shows up regularly and spends hours sitting and talking with Thordis. <laughs> uh, Thordis, by the way, seems more than happy to encourage Thormod's visits and his attention. Yeah, like I said, we have uh, we have trod these paths many times. Yes, um, and this is this is a small town, and it's not long before rumors start flying about these mm-hmm. two. And of course, those rumors put the worst spin on what's happening. Of course, uh, so word now gets back to Grima that people are saying that Thordis has been seduced by Thormod. Uh, and for the record, there's no indication of the text that's actually the case. I mean, it's strictly rumor, or at least it's presented as being rumor. Mm-hmm. Grima approaches Thormod about uh, their options here, uh, but the conversation doesn't really get anywhere because... Uh, actually, um, uh, why don't you read Grima? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, how old is Grima, John? Um, I mean, she's got an adult daughter and she's a widow, uh, but... All right, then. She, as we'll learn, she's still quite hale and hearty, so... Well, you're going to catch my, my uh, Hale and Hardy widow voice then. There you go. All right. So Grima says to Thormod, A lot of people are whispering about what you're doing here with my daughter. <laughs> this is Hale and Hardy? <laughs> not at all pleased with it. You can't see her body. It's just uh, you're just hearing the vocal cords. Listen to the loons, Henry. <laughs> I, am, I am not at all pleased with the effect you're having on her reputation. I'm not saying you wouldn't be a good son-in-law, but the fact oh, is self. that you're you're a troll on the doorstep to anyone else who might want to marry her. <laughs> but if you did want to marry her, well, I, I'd certainly accept the offer and, well, give her to you. That's a subtly handled, Grima. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and uh, I'm... I'm 
going to not get too concerned about the Catherine Hepburn voice. Uh, Thormod replies, You put the matter very well, and I'll take due notice of what you say. But marriage doesn't suit my temperament. If it did, I, I'd look no further than to ask for your daughter's hand, but as it is, this will not be coming to pass. <laughs> so, in essence, Thormod's attitude is that while he likes Thordis quite a lot, he's not the marrying type, and he has no intention of a serious relationship with her or any other woman, for that matter. Yeah, and to his, I, guess, I, I, I suppose to his credit, Thormod does try to respect Grimma's attitude here, and so he spends the rest of the summer sticking to his parents' farm. Still, it's not a very uh, good romance hero kind of posture to be taking. I agree. Uh, Hasn't but, he read the but, but uh, poet's sagas? I mean, clearly, uh, because come winter, <laughs> the tedium of life at Lagobal really gets to him. Oh. So when the rivers and lakes begin uh, to freeze over between their farms, making it even easier to travel back and forth, that temptation is too much. And soon he's back at Grima's farm and chatting with Thordis. This young man really needs to get out more. Maybe no, no, no. different paths. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Getting out more is exactly the problem. <laughs> uh, he's, a, oh, he's about to have a more pressing problem, which is that Grima decides to delegate the problem to her farm steward, Kolbach. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, this seems like an odd way of dealing with the situation. I mean, we just finished setting up Grima as a witch archetype, and we've seen how witches whose daughters are being seduced handle things in other sagas. Um, so, going and having a word with the foreman, that doesn't seem like the most eldritch solution to the problem. <laughs> would it help if I said Kolbach was a golem? Uh, uh, yeah, he's that not. Help. He's not, he, but, you know. He's a construct. Help. Yes. Uh, no. But hang on a minute till we meet him. Kolbach is a large man, tall and broad, and he has a pleasant face. Hmm. He also has a reputation as a skilled fighter, so she's sicking an assassin on him. Hmm. I mean, assassin makes it sound so professional. This is <laughs> this is pretty amateur hour stuff here, John. Kolbach mm-hmm. doesn't even have his own weapon. Grima gives him an old short sword that she's honed to a razor's edge. And Why does she, she have actually, a short sword? Well, you know, maybe her, her husband had one. <laughs> right, uh, But she doesn't say that she wants Kolbach to kill Thormod. She just, you know, gives him a sword and casts a spell of protection over him. Ah, well, there's the witchcraft angle, at least. Yeah. Um, we, we shouldn't breeze past that spell. Uh, Grima's ritual is that she takes several coils of yarn from a trunk, stuffs them into Kolbach's coat as padding, and then runs her hands over Kolbach's clothes and body. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk about that, but first let's finish the story. Uh, okay, so the next time Thormod comes to visit Thordis, Kolbach is sent out, supposedly to deliver some cloth to a neighboring farm, but... Thordis knows her mother, and before Thormod leaves, she says, Kolbach, I want you to take a different route from the one you usually take. Go alongside the bay and make your way around the slope to get to Lagobal this time. What makes you want me to take that route? Well, I mean, the, the ice has been getting worse, you know, and the, the weather's been thawing, and oh, I don't want you to have an accident. Uh... The ice seems solid enough to me on the way here. Look, look, Thormod. I'm not in the habit of making requests. I shall take it badly if you don't do as I ask. Right, so this conversation makes it very clear that whatever her mother thinks, Thordis doesn't mind Thormod's company. Yeah. But uh, Thormod is also not in the habit of listening to other people, so he tells Thordis he'll do as she asks, but 
when he leaves the farm, he just takes his usual route home. Uh, that's so Thormod of him, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, he only gets about halfway there before Kolbach jumps out of a sheepfold near the path and rushes towards him. Right, presumably with skeins of yarn sticking out of his cloak yes. in various directions. Yes, yes. Sort of it's a quite scarecrow festive. of yarn. It's quite, it's quite festive, really. Yeah. Uh, but Thormov <laughs> can't really enjoy it because Kolbach's decided not to waste time on words. In fact, he's already attacking. Oh. He catches Thormod flat-footed, hacks at his right arm, leaving a deep wound. Oh. Uh, Thormod staggers backward, throwing his shield down and drawing his own sword with his left hand. But he's definitely a righty. Uh, and so he has to use both hands to try to aim his blows while he tries to return the attack. Uh, and although he does manage to gain the upper hand and strikes several times, he somehow can't seem to penetrate Kolbach's flesh or cloak. Well, I mean, there's so much yarn stuffed in there. And magic. Well, yarn and magic. And that is a potent combination. All witches know this. <laughs> I mean, in this context, it's clearly understood that it's Grima's magic that's turning the blows away. But you make a fair point. <laughs> I don't know what the stopping power of a coat stuffed with yarn would be, but it's not nothing. Uh, it's definitely not nothing. You know, uh, but that's, uh, the, also, that's the... Also, yarn and magic is a potent combination. Sounds like a niche t-shirt slogan for a very specific demographic of knitting witches. I mean, if you think about somebody, some of our listeners, get on that. If, if you think about some of our listeners, I think uh, yarn and magic, um, those two things go together for a lot That's of... That's what I'm saying. A lot of I them. I think uh, somebody, somebody's got to... Somebody get on uh, Topatico. <laughs> uh... Yarn and magic <laughs> is a potent combination. Um, okay. Uh, I am betting that... Uh, yeah. Well, well, let's finish this fight. Well, that is the end of the fight. Well, I mean, not quite, because Kolbach lets Thormod wear himself out for a couple minutes, and then he says, You know I can do whatever I want with you, Thormod, but I'll <laughs> refrain from killing you right now. You chose the darkness, Thormod. I was born to it. <laughs> What's this voice you're doing? <laughs> it's it's Kolbach's new voice. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, but I, I mean, that... That really yeah, sucks. Ahead. I mean, it's condescension from a guy with balls of yarn falling out of his pockets. Yeah. That hurts. It does. It does. You know, he's taking time out of being a cat toy to Raz Thormod <laughs> after maiming him. <laughs> yeah. I knew one of us was going to make a cat toy joke. I, I, yeah. I just assumed it was going to be me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is the uh, the image that we've got from the illustration that we've got from uh, uh, Jacob Faust, uh, Scarpay, of course it is. underscore illustrator. Um, he's got an image of uh, Kolbach standing over a very hurt uh, Thormod, <laughs> um, looking rather concerned. Uh, it's great, balls great. Balls of yarn so, falling everywhere? No, there's no balls of yarn, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, but there you go. Um, so check out our show notes for that. And, uh, and thank you to Jacob for uh, putting that together for us. And the balls of yarn are implied. Yes, balls. Well, they're inside. They're inside. Right. So you can't see them. Anyway, at this point, Kolbach returns to Grima's farm and reports on what happened. Grima's annoyed uh, that he let Thormod live, but otherwise rather pleased with how things turned out. It's mm -hmm. not often that you have uh, an assassin who is sent in the sagas actually achieve their goal. Good point. Um, so I think uh, credit to Although, Kolbach here. I mean, if we're going to call him an assassin, we can't really say he achieved his goal. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. But they they almost always come back dead. So Right. Right. You know, Which is, again, I, I not actually accurate. But <laughs> <laughs> Still, you know, you know, in in the grand scheme of the, the many sagas that we've covered so far, uh, Kolbach is one of the few to actually do a decent job. At, yeah. No, that's, you know, 
Um, anyway, so, uh, John, how are we doing with the way things are turning out? What does that even mean? I don't have a horse in this race. I mean, the literary analysis of this thing. I think we you know, oh, might want to break this down do. a little bit. What we what we theoretically do. What we theoretically do. No, there are a few quirks to this story that are interesting. Uh, but for the most part, we're telling, I think, a very familiar tale. Yes. Um, there are going to be a lot of recognizable motifs and archetypes in this section of the saga. Well, I mean, as we've said a few times, uh, Thorger's story was veering toward the outlaw hero genre in his chapters, mm-hmm. while Thormod is well on the path to becoming a warrior poet. Yes. And that's a subgenre defined by some tightly structured story elements. And that means that we can start to anticipate a few things. For example, yes. one thing about being a warrior poet is that they tend to have a longevity problem. <laughs> yes, uh, they do. We've read a bunch of warrior poet sagas, right? Yeah, like uh, four or five, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe six if we're willing to stretch the definition of warrior poet just a little bit. Uh-huh. Well, uh, we have enough to look for patterns in the tradition, so let's do that. Um, I made a list. Gunlog Serpent Tongue was a warrior poet. How'd his story end up? Oh, yeah, Gunlog. I mean, it's been a while, but I know that Gunlog mm-hmm. fell in love with Helga the Fair, and then he fought a duel with his rival, Hraven the Poet, and they both died tragically. And then, well, <laughs> and then we outlawed them both, so maybe yes, it wasn't so yeah. tragic. Uh, very good. Uh, and Halfred? That is Halfred, the troublesome poet. Yes, he fell in love with a woman as well. Uh, her name was Kolfina, uh, I think. Very good. Kolfina it is. He also had a rival, a Gris Samingson. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Halfred got caught up in his career as a man of King Olaf's court and eventually died brokenhearted after his king was killed. Yes. Just to stick to the order we covered them in, how about Cormac's saga? Oh, yes. Cormac. Uh, he fell in love with uh, um, John Help. Yum, yum. Um, Steingard. Yeah, I had to look at that Steingard. One yes, yes. Yes, yeah, Steingard. Yes. Okay, so I, I remember this one. Um, Cormac proved to be a terrible suitor. Um <laughs> as they often do. Um, And Steingart eventually married another man. And then Cormac got himself killed by a Scottish giant. Right. I trust the pattern is beginning to emerge. Uh, Uh The the next one is Bjorn the Hitterdahl champion. The mighty Bjorn. Yes. One of my, uh, one of my thingmen. Yeah. Good for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Bjorn also fell in love uh, with a woman named Odney Islecandle, which, which props for the name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Odney married Bjorn's rival, and then Bjorn was eventually ambushed and killed by almost two dozen of his neighbors. Oof. So the pattern is something like, poet falls in love with woman, loses out to a rival one way or another, and then dies. Yeah, dies with his love unfulfilled or unrequited, yeah. Okay, but what about Vigeland's saga? Uh, One of my favorites. Vigeland Mm -hmm. and his beloved managed to get married and live happily ever after. So, aha, pattern broken. (laughs) Take that, John. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, uh, Viglund is the exception, but that's exactly why so many people have argued that Viglund's saga isn't really a warrior poet saga. Oh, poo on that. I, I tend to agree with you that it is one, uh, but there is an ar- a counter-argument. It's largely about it not fulfilling those, those expectations. A tragic, unrequited, or unconsummated love seems to be almost a prerequisite for being in the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Again, this isn't a carbon copy, um, it's worth saying. Um, uh, Thormod's got his own qualities as a protagonist, as we'll see. But broadly speaking, (laughs) qualities. Uh, But broadly speaking, Thormod's story is going to be shaped into a warrior poet figure like 
Cormac or Vigland or Gunlaug Serpentong. And that means that Thormoth should be very careful what he wishes for in this episode. Right. Because now that he's injured and pining for this girl, mm-hmm. if he composes a lovesick poem, well, we all yeah. know that lovesick poems from warrior poets, that's a death sentence in the sagas. Right. Well, he's had a lucky escape this time. But it's true. If, if Thormod insists on pursuing this courtship of a sorceress's daughter, his odds of surviving his story are going to go way down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not the nicest way of saying it, but yes, yes. Well, let's get back to Thormod, who we left bleeding and frustrated on the path. Uh, once Kolbach leaves, Thormod bandages his arm and goes home, where mm-hmm. he decides the manly thing to do is to pretend nothing's wrong, and so he sits down for a late supper. But one of the servants sees that he's not eating much and that blood is pouring from his sleeve and alerts Bersi, Thormod's father. And Bersi, once he's heard the whole story, says, Grimma's at work here. It's not clear how this outrage is to be avenged if we have to deal with sorcery. And Thormod, stop me if you've heard this one before, Andy, Thormod has a verse ready for the occasion. Oh no, we said don't. I parried the Fury's blows, the furious assault, but cast my shield away, suffered wounds through the War King's song. When will I see a chance, giver of Wave's beacon, of vengeance on that clumsy launcher of Wave-riding ravens? Well, this is a little different. How is this different? Well, I mean, for one thing, it's about him, not Thorgir. So, that's not, okay, that that's a different that's difference in subject. <laughs> yeah, but he's still playing the hits. Otherwise, he even makes another reference to sailing. <laughs> Although they're a sailing time, people, John. What do yep, you expect? Uh, this time, he uses it to insult Kolbach by causing him a calling him a clumsy launcher of wave riding ravens. Mm-hmm. In other words, an incompetent sailor. The, therefore, an incompetent man. Right. Well, right. Um, now, there's something of a theme emerging in Thormod's poetry, if you pay attention, but you got to really look close to see it. Oh, yeah. It's, you got to squint just right. <laughs> For a guy who spends all his time in Iceland, he's really focused on seamanship as a marker of masculinity, isn't he? Yeah. He's also understandably frustrated. I mean, yeah. as far as he's concerned, he suffered a fairly major injury from a man he regards as an inferior fighter. Remember, mm-hmm. he managed to tag Kolbach several times. He just couldn't injure him. Yeah. Uh, and as long as Kolbach is protected by Grima and her mar- marvelous mystical wool, he can't do much about it. Yeah, but but now Bersi's son has been badly injured by the neighborhood sorcerer. And once he finishes bandaging his son's arm, well, Bersi's definitely going to make a complaint to the neighborhood association. Uh, or possibly he's just going to get some armed men and go seek revenge. Either one's good, but what I want to know is, is Grima putting her trash can away in the garage or is she leaving it out for all to see i mean hmm? the, the biggest problem is that she's leaving up her decorations past january 6th oh, how and thus she? really breaking down the neighborhood <laughs> there's definitely fines coming her way part 11 a sinister development to be clear bercy and thormod know who kolbach is which means they know that he was almost certainly sent by grima well, Thormod no doubt recognized the tufts of wool uh, sticking out of Kolbach's coat as hers. Well, no, he's just been a regular visitor to the farm for a while now. And Kolbach is essentially the highest ranking servant there. They've met. Also, uh, she's the only known sorceress in the immediate area. Uh-huh. And 
Kobok's invulnerability during the fight is pretty classic witchcraft. Sure. So, the day after the fight, Bercy and his men ride to Grima's farm. Yeah, uh, Thormod stays behind because that arm looks pretty bad, and he needs to rest up. Yeah, but Bercy still has quite a few men with him, and among them are some real fighters. Yeah, and they're riding fully armed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when he rolls up to Grima's farm, he's not trying to catch them off guard. Uh, When he knocks on the door, Grima already knows who it is, and she's pretty sure she knows why he's there. Yeah, and before she enters the door, she's already made preparations in the house. She seats her men on a long bench in the main room of the farmhouse with Kolbach sitting in the middle. All of them are armed. There's a there's a lot of armed men in this small town all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once she's got her men staged the way that she wants, Grima passes her hands over Kolbach before answering the door and greeting Bercy warmly. Yeah, uh, Bercy's not in the mood for pretense, though. Mm-hmm. That's a friendly enough greeting, but I doubt you care, care much how we fare. So know this. Learning that you fare badly would hardly upset us. <laughs> you surprise me, Bercy. We are your friends, and I thought you were ours. What have you come to tell us? What news I have to tell, you already know. Your man, Kolbach, inflicted a bloody wound on my son, Thormod. Now, Grima's obviously ready for this. He, he what now? I'm shocked. <laughs> this is bad news indeed, if it is true. And even worse, because it was I who sent Kolbach off with some goods last night. And he hasn't come home. He probably didn't dare to face me, because he knows how much I value Thormod as a friend. Well, she's laying it on a little thick. Well, hang on, she's just getting started. Oh. Now, I've long suspected Kolbach of having designs on my daughter Thordis. Now he's shown his folly by attacking Thormod, an excellent man out of jealousy. Okay. This deed heaped scorn upon my daughter and brought shame and dishonor to us and our household. Now it is my job to do what is in my power to set things right. Is she about to promise not to rest until the real culprit is found? Oh, just wait and see. <laughs> well, Grima, it's been said you're quite capable of shamming when the occasion suits you. <laughs> but we'll soon see how close your words are to the truth. Well, I'll tell you what. I'd be grateful if you were to come in and search my home top to bottom. To be sure I'm not harboring Kolbach. And to prove that I had no part in the deed that he has done. Yeah, and anyone who's read a saga or two won't be surprised to learn that Bercy and his men can't see Kolbach. Because of a spell that Grimma has placed on his helmet before answering the door. Classic. There's a... There's a scene that's played for tension with Bercy sitting on the bench behind Kolbach and peering around, but predictably enough, nothing comes of it. Uh, Grimma's mm-hmm. magic is too strong. Uh, and the whole thing is a little ridiculous, as these moments often are. Bercy finally has to be content with going outside and formally accusing Kolbach and summonsing him for a grievous wound against Thormod. And of course that works, right? I mean, there's a lawsuit that summer at the All Thing, uh, but it's mm-hmm. conducted in absentia because... Kolbach hasn't shown his face anywhere since the attack. Brave man. Uh, Thormod, meanwhile, is there uh, because he's showing off a permanently maimed arm. Uh, Thormod's going to be fighting left-handed from now on, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. He can hold a shield with his injured arm, but any fighting has to be done southpaw. Yeah, it's a really interesting feature yeah. of the of, of this story that Thormod's... And it will come uh, up, and it will be a plot point going forward. 
exactly. I mean, it's, it's great. We see a guy get his arm injured, and now he's he's left-handed. Um, uh, John, you're left-handed too, aren't you? I am, yes. So what happened to your right arm, I, I wonder? <laughs> wow. Yeah, you can go to hell. You, uh, <laughs> oh, you wouldn't choose to be left-handed, would you? Oh, wow. Uh, hey, I'm no. happy to welcome Thormod into the ranks of the Sinister Legion of Left-Handers. No, as you know, my uh, eldest daughter's left-handed, and I think they can be wonderful people, left-handers. Oh, they, they. Listen to how you talk. <laughs> uh, well, Thormod, welcome. I'll even teach you the secret handshake, which, ironically, you have to do with your right hand. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, fighting left-handed actually might not be as noticeable in a Saga Age context, since uh, warriors fought in individual style using the left or right hand. is It's really a matter of choice. True. Um, it's not the Roman legions, John. Right. <laughs> there would be obviously more right-handed fighters, but that's just a fact of population and percentiles. Uh, and we've seen a few fighters who are accomplished at using either hand or both hands in combat. Yeah. And, and it's not Inigo Montoya style either. It's none of that I am not left-handed stuff. These are people who are legitimately equally skilled with both hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not Thormod, though. No, no. He, he's going to be at a disadvantage from this point forward. Uh, which plays to Thorgar's, uh, you know, right. thoughts on the subject of what happens if they fight each other. But he's still strong enough to be an effective fighter. Yeah. But his days of physical dominance are probably over. Mm. So, so far, Thormod's story is following the warrior poet formula. And he's just turning out to be not great at it. I prefer to think of him as innovative. Really? Uh, this is a new way of telling a warrior poet story. We, we've seen like the live. warrior poet who doesn't even want the girl. Right, right. I mean, we've <laughs> seen warrior poets that live. We've seen warrior poets that die. We've mm-hmm. never really seen one be bad at it before. Yeah. Uh, remind me real quick. Does Kolbach even have any interest in Thordis? No. That is strictly so we don't even that have a love made up to justify the attack. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, while we're, we're marching down the path of the warrior poet saga, we're right. not exactly... Step for step here. No, there's a little bit of deconstruction going on here, right? The rival yes. isn't even a real rival, right? It's an, an exactly. invention of the mother to avoid having to marry her her daughter to to uh, uh, Thormod, or at least it's a way to cover for the fact that Thormod has told has rejected what was essentially a proposal of marriage from Grimma on her daughter's behalf. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's it's worth saying that you know this is a this is an author in the same way that uh, the author of Gretzer Saga is playing with saga conventions in some mm-hmm. interesting ways. Um, that's what this author is doing, and so what you right. would expect from a warrior poet saga is not exactly what you're going to get. It's kind of turning it on its head. Um, so right. that love triangle isn't really a love triangle; it's a a manufactured triangle for the purposes of of drama. Right, the pieces are all there, but they don't they don't serve the same purposes as they do in a standard text. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and I think it's worth saying that uh, one of the things that marks Thormod as a, a bad warrior poet is the fact that he's always finding new ways to undermine his own story. <laughs> all right, let's uh, let's wrap this bit up. So the all thing is happening, and as everyone expects, uh, Kalbach is outlawed for an unprovoked attack. Mm-hmm. But no one seems to know where he is, so enforcing that punishment is going to be a bit tricky. Yeah, uh, they never do catch him either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grima is still anticipating every move her opponents make. Um, she's really a remarkable figure yep. if you if you look at all the moves she makes and just the intelligence with which she approaches this this conflict. So anyway, she she calls Colback to her and tells him, 
Well, uh, I expect you'll be found guilty and likely outlawed for life over this. So I want to give you two things. First, a passage out of Iceland and your freedom. You're no longer my servant, Kolbak. You will leave Iceland a free man. Ah, that's kind of a classic good news, bad news scenario, isn't it? Is there, my bad, Kolbak. Let me see what I can do to make it up for you. <laughs> You're free now. <laughs> now, I, I mean, I guess it depends on Kolbak's attitude towards Iceland. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably a lot more opportunity on the continent if yep. he heads that way. Yep. Uh, but he's obviously thrilled to be a free man, as any servant would be. Um, and Grima also stakes him a bit of money and gets him passage on a ship heading to Norway. So not yeah. too bad for him. Yeah, there's a bit of kerfuffle over that last bit. Uh, the ship's captain, Ingolf, is an acquaintance of hers. But he also knows about the attack on Thormod, and he's worried that having a legal mess like Kolbach the Outlaw on his ship will bring bad luck. Bad luck in the form of a few ships worth of men looking for a fugitive called Kolbach. Yeah, waving pitchforks and torches in the air. You know, the usual mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. Uh, now, Ingolf the Skipper is finally convinced to help, partly by the strength of his friendship with Grima, but mostly by the 200 pieces of silver that Grima slowly dumps into his lap while they negotiate. Well, I mean, that is a convincing argument. Uh, remember, that's the same argument that the widow Sigurfjolf used to placate Vermin the Slender after uh, a couple episodes ago when Thorger and Thormod killed two of uh, the of Vermin's followers. Yeah. Yeah. A lap full of silver carries a great deal of rhetorical weight, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it still does uh, the, these days. <laughs> but uh, that's 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 true. This is yet another recurring element in the saga. Uh, there's a certain kind of cynicism about people's integrity and how fragile integrity is when money gets involved. Yeah. Uh, insert trenchant observation about modern world here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ingolf sold his soul for 200 pieces of silver or six and two thirds Christ's. Well, that's that's actually a lot. Well, inflation. <laughs> so uh, once all of that is settled, things go smoothly. And Ingolf does get Kolbach out of Iceland and out of the saga in one piece. Mm-hmm. Kolbach later joins up with a Viking ship's crew and becomes a successful raider. So good for yeah. him. It's a nice happy ending for our pseudo-assassin. Someone should write a saga about that guy. I mean, that'd be great. But we've got Thormod and his damaged sword arm. Uh, yeah, but what's Kolbach up to? And uh, uh, Before we move on to the next section, this is something I want to point out quickly. You hinted at it a moment ago. Uh, we talked a couple episodes back about the number of strong-willed women in this saga, and mm-hmm. Grimma definitely belongs on this list. Yeah. Uh, think about how many sorceresses we've seen in the sagas and how few of them actually get away with whatever they're doing. Grimma's been one step ahead of Thormont's family the entire time. Ultimately, their only compensation is to outlaw a man whose situation is measurably improved by outlawry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can probably say that Kolbach got a better compensation deal out of this than the man that he wounded. Yeah. On the other hand, Thormod at least gets the public honor of having his assailant outlawed permanently, and he, yeah. he actually takes that outlawry. Right. And I'm just going to say that uh, presenting that as on the other hand was in poor taste. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the settlement isn't nothing, right? The outlawry isn't nothing. Uh, so Thormod gets honor, but he gets it at a fairly heavy cost. But, I mean, he did manage to fall in love and escape uh, injured but alive. Maybe he's broken the warrior poet mold? Uh, I mean, I still question whether he really fell in love, but, uh, you know, <laughs> as long as he doesn't go falling for anyone else, uh, everything's well, fine. Well, 
about that. Part 12, Colebrow's Poet. Okay. Now, this next part is... It's an important bit of Thormod's story. As opposed to all the irrelevant nonsense we've read up till now? Those are your words. <laughs> <laughs> so, once his arm is more or less healed, Thormod returns to working on his father Bersi's farm. But he's finding it a bit dull. And so he jumps at any chance of a trip away from the farm, even for a minor task. So, one day... He and his crew of farmhands sail out to an island where Bersi has a fish-drying shack to collect stockfish for the farm. But their small ferry boat runs into bad weather halfway there, and they take shelter in an inlet near Onardaler. Uh, and that's where they wait for the storm to pass. Right. And that's why it's so important not to start one of these trips until you've checked in with Stormfield and the Eyewitness News Weather Center. <laughs> Stormfield. Again with this. Again with yes. this. Yes. <laughs> no, actually, uh, as you know, having been there a few times, the weather mm-hmm. in Iceland is notoriously changeable. In fact, if you rent a car, uh, you have to sign paperwork that says, hey, yep. pay attention. <laughs> I will not it's be not an a, idiot. Yeah, yeah. And I won't let the door be blown off when I open it uh, <laughs> willy-nilly. No. Uh, it, it's not unheard of to get caught in unexpected bad weather. That's just mm-hmm. the way things are. Right, I know, but reading the weather is one of those skills that's kind of indispensable to a ship's captain. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things are powered by oar and sail. Knowing which way the wind's blowing and whether the wind's going to be filled with hail when it blows is kind of important. Well, I mean, this is a storm, but true. It, it, it is a narrative detail that shows up a lot. Uh, once more, we see that neither of the Sworn Brothers is, is really uh, terribly good as a ship's pilot. You know, um, I can't remember if we've ever talked about stockfish on here before. I mean, we've talked about dried fish, I think. Yeah, I, but I mean, not how they get that way. Uh, well, I, so, I don't think it's a mystery, John. Uh, you, you really want to take <laughs> it's a digression a whole thing. on that? No, it's a whole thing. Uh, see, okay. these fish drying setups are pretty simple. They're, uh, they're wooden racks, which can look like A-frame tents or arbors or just big flat racks. Uh-huh. Uh, they're usually set up on a cropping of land exposed to sea winds in cold weather which is then covered in gutted fish. Mm-hmm. The fish are left exposed to the elements for a few weeks or a few months. Uh, and and I, had to, I read up on this. Uh, a kind of fermentation process goes on, which sounds much less pleasant than it is. Uh, but that results in a dried and matured sort of fish plank, which can be stored for a couple of years or even longer. Mm-hmm. Yes. You've just described drying fish, John. Yeah. I mean, it's not a real mystery on that one. <laughs> I, I just, I feel like it's a, you know, it's important to talk, explain that when we say stockfish, okay. it's a term that comes up. Gotcha. Uh, okay. What we're talking about there is just fish that have been dried through being exposed to sea air. Right. So when, when I, when you said, have we ever talked about stockfish? And I said, we've talked about dried fish. You, you thought that meant it's a good opportunity to talk about stockfish. how one, how one dries right. fish. To stock but them. But specifically by putting them out on on the, the coast for sea air in cold weather. I mean, you can't, that just, isn't... You can't just You can't just hang a fish off a tree, Andy. There's a science here. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> They're making fish uh, cheese, Andy. You can't well, just anyway. do that any which way. Any willy-nilly way. 
Well, the, the, the mild fermentation that happens there, it, it's an interesting process. Uh, it results in a, probably a very tasty fish. Um, and it's also a very economical way of preserving food. So nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. And I'm not the world's biggest seafood fan, uh, but it's not bad. Uh, it's, it's strong, but it's not bad. A little salty, but most not uh, really. I mean, you, you know, you have to, you have to kind of, you want salt, you got to put that, you got to really kind of do that. It's uh that's the whole thing, is it? It's a, it's the, it's a really, really. It, there is no more easy way to preserve food because you don't actually need to add anything. True. Whatever hey, John, salt is being added is coming from the ocean air. John, ask me real quick. Uh, hey, yeah. say, say something like this. Say, hey, Andy, have you ever had any stockfish? Have you tasted it before? <laughs> I'm sorry. Is this part of are we? Is this a bit you're doing? <laughs> no, just go ahead and ask me. See what happens. Uh, hey, Andy, have you ever had stockfish before? <laughs> no, John. No, I, I grew up in Ohio and Miami, Florida. I I, I didn't. Uh, no. Oh, see, I I actually live right near Cape Cod. I didn't even have to go to Iceland to try stockfish. Really? What did yeah. they just have it hanging off of the A frames uh, no, around? Get, you can actually you can get uh, like these dried fish bits in uh, uh, grocery stores. Oh, can you now? Quite good. All right, Dad. Uh, give me some it's, of that stockfish there. It's not bad. I've never tried the the Icelandic thing though of like serving it with butter. I haven't tried that. Do you put the butter on the fish, or you just? I believe have... so. Yes, that is the that is what is done in Iceland. Again, I have not done it, but uh, I understand that that is a thing. John, I I can sense the emails coming in right now. I I believe that is a staple of traditional Irish uh, Icelandic cuisine. Excuse me, Irish cuisine, uh, Icelandic <laughs> cuisine. Uh, oh, it's okay. uh, it, I don't know how often it's eaten by younger generations in Iceland, but I know that many, many generations, including people who are still of the older generation alive today, uh, use that as a staple food. Stockfish and butter. Yes. Okay. Well, those of you who are younger generations of Icelanders uh, and those of you who are older generations of Icelanders, uh, go ahead and send us the emails. Let us know what kind of stockfish you're eating. And what you're eating it with. And is it salty or is it, uh, you know, fishy? I don't, I don't know. What does it taste like? And maybe it's, next... It's a little fishy, Andy. <laughs> you, you, might, you might not be surprised to hear this, but it's a little fishy. <laughs> well, next time uh, John and I are in Iceland, uh, you can invite us over and we'll eat all the stockfish you've got. That's absolutely... All right. Uh, that it was uh, an even more pointless digression than usual, uh, but it might have got us some stockfish in the future. John. There you go. A free meal. Right. But the problem here is Thormod didn't actually get to the storehouse. He didn't actually well, get to the stockfish. Excuse me for trying to add a bit of fishy flavor to the show. Uh, carry on. <laughs> Where were we? What, 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 what? Uh, storm inlet camping out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was he was out yeah. trying to get fish, and the storm hit. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, they're camping out. So after a miserable time in their makeshift tent, Thormod wanders up the beach to the nearest farm, which was once owned by a man named Gloom. But Gloom died not long before, and his widow Katla and their daughter Thorbjörg are running the farm now. Uh, and they also have. A group of female servants, John. Yep. So maybe you see where this is headed. A little outcropping of Amazonia right there. (laughs) Right, yes. Oh, (laughs) naughty zoot. Oh, God, no. Um, Now, Kotla sees him approaching. I go for strong, independent warrior women, Andy, and you go for fetish girls. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just uh, saying. I'm just thinking of a, a, a lonely night in a storm, <laughs> caught out there, Absolutely. stumbling upon a group of women, and uh, Zoot comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, naughty Zoot. Kotla uh, sees him approaching the farm and welcomes him right away, and she's heard of Thormod before and knows of his family, uh, but mm. this is their first time meeting. Right, and Kotla brings Thormod up to the farmhouse where he meets Thorbjörg. And the author gives us a, a thorough description of Thorbjörg. Uh, Thorbjörg was a courteous woman, but hardly accounted a beauty. Ooh. She had black hair and black eyebrows and was therefore called Kolbrun or Kolbrow. She had an intelligent look to her, a good complexion, a slim build and well-proportioned figure of medium height, though she was a bit splay-footed. <laughs> What? Okay, that, first of all, that's a lot of detail. Yes, it Second, is. Second, splay-footed? Yeah, I know. I know. It's a thing that actually comes up surprisingly often in the sagas, though. They're Does very it? interested in how a person's stance uh, comes across. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, we do have a, a question that we, we haven't answered yet, uh, but it, oh. it asks about uh, body types of women, preferred body oh. types of women in the sagas. I believe Stephanie asked this question uh we never got to it, but uh, oh, what do you think, get to John? That one. Yeah, we should yeah. get to that one these days. Yeah, one of these days, maybe we could. <laughs> I mean, we've we've already, in this episode today, we've already referred to Odney Isle Candle, which uh, yeah. when I did the research on that nickname, uh, it's almost certainly a reference to her figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this this is also a reference to a figure. We've also had, don't forget, Thorbjörg's Shipbreast. I, I was just thinking Also, of her. presumably, a reference to a figure. Uh, one it so, could be yeah we could be yeah so uh, maybe um, you know maybe next time we we tackle that one um because I, I know we've got a couple questions uh for this yep. time but uh yeah we should hit that uh, now that we've got this nice lengthy description of this splay footed uh Great. homely woman i guess uh not homely not homely well um, it says she's, she's got a good complexion a, a slim build a well-proportioned figure oh, wait, no, 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 intelligent it, look andy a courteous woman, but hardly accounted a beauty, I believe it well, says. Well, your superficial standards of beauty, Andy, uh, well, look, are not my, what we're my using My standards here. of beauty and the saga standards of beauty might she's be very, very intelligent. Different. She's intelligent, dark-haired, with a good complexion and a slim build. I mean, that's that's a good woman. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> it, it, you know, it kind of feels like, as I, I, I look at that description again, it kind of yeah. feels like some of those in-depth descriptions of, of someone like Ail Scott Grimson. Uh, yeah, someone who's not conventionally beautiful, but but has a compelling presence, and that's that's yeah. kind of how I see her. Yeah, uh, and Thormod is certainly interested in her. Uh, says all that day he stole occasional glances at Thorbjorg and liked what he saw. Mm-hmm. She would look at him too, and he was pleasing to her. Probably because as a splay-footed woman, she'd be very sturdy on a boat, and we know how Thormod likes his really? boat imagery. <laughs> I, I don't know. You're obsessed with this. Am I or is Thormod? <laughs> but here, here's the real question, John. Yeah. What about uh, what about Thordis? You remember her? Uh, well, Thordis's mom did try to have him killed. I do remember uh, that. But hang on to that thought. Yeah. So this this turns into a multi-day flirtation. Mm-hmm. Each day, Thormod walks up the slope to spend the day with Thorbjorg and her mother, and each night he returns to his tent. And when the weather clears, Katla asks him to stay with them a while longer, so Thormod does. And then he sends his men on to fetch the stockfish while he extends his visit for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, he was only going along with them because he was bored. 
That's uh, true. I mean, Thormod is turning out to be a bit of a dilettante when it comes to farm work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he's not bored now. Oh, no. No, he isn't. He is spending his time talking with Thorbjorg, and eventually he even composes a few verses praising her, and he calls them the Kolbrun verses, the Darkbrow verses. Right. Uh, remember that that's their title as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we'd love nothing better than to spend a few minutes enjoying those poems, but unfortunately they aren't actually included in the saga. Yeah, which is a real missed opportunity for the writer, you know? Right. But uh, use your imagination. Uh, you, you better make it good, though, because uh, the verses are very pleasing to Thorbjorg and to Katla. <laughs> and it tells you a lot about the relationship that this mother and daughter have, that uh, Katla gets to hear the uh, the love verses praising her daughter. Uh, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't normally share with your mom. Yes. Uh, Katla, by the way, likes the verses so much that she gives Thormod a finger ring and a new name. She dubs him Thormod Colbrun's poet. So she's just rolling out the old welcome mat and planning the wedding ale at this point, isn't she? Yeah, she's even given him a ring for his finger. And this is the last piece falling into place. Mm-hmm. Thormod is now fully inhabiting the warrior poet role, dedicating his poetry and his name to an eligible woman. Yeah, there is one problem with that, though. But, I mean, how could there be a problem? I mean, Kotla approves of this, and no one's sending yarn-stuffed killers after Thormod <laughs> this time. No, this one is meant to be. I mean, that's a, that's a really low standard for love, Andy. Well, no one is the... wrapping assassins in textiles and trying to kill you, so <laughs> it's all good. I mean, it's definitely better than the alternative. Okay, <laughs> but the actual problem is that Thormod isn't in love with Thorbjörg. Well, I mean, that is that is a problem, but we know his character. Yeah. Not in love with her. Uh, just spent several weeks with her, wrote some verses praising her, and accepted the nickname Colburn's Poet. It's sort of ambiguous behavior. Yeah, I should say so. Yeah. Actually, the, the problem is that it's not all that ambiguous. It's, it's pretty mm-hmm. clearly and straightforwardly the actions of a man who's fallen for a woman. Yeah. The only inconsistency here is that Thormod hasn't. He isn't right. that interested. <laughs> I mean... Not that Thormod isn't sending mixed signals here, but at least he has not made a formal agreement with Thorbjörg. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely not because of any lack of effort on Katla's part. She fawns over her guest, and she makes it very clear when he leaves that he'd be most welcome on a return visit. Yeah, but as pleasant as his time with Katla and Kolbrow is... Uh-huh. Thormod seems to forget about them pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. when winter rolls around, though, he is moved to make a visit. Yeah, but not to Cutlass Farm, though. No, no. Uh, no, he's, he's suddenly remembered that he left things rather up in the air with uh, Grima's daughter, Thordis. Mm-hmm. So he didn't totally forget about that, and we do have no. a love triangle. Yeah, no, he just put it on the back burner for a year while he healed up and, you know, wrote verses about another woman. <laughs> eh, but it'll be fine, right? I mean... Sure, Thordis' mother tried to have him killed for wooing her last year, but water under the bridge, right? Sure. I mean, you know, given that Thormod's now left-handed, I'm I'm not sure he's completely forgotten about being attacked. <laughs> but he's willing to let bygones be bygones as long as he's allowed to resume his visits to Thordis. It's not bicker and argue about who <laughs> sent yarn stuffed assassins after who. <laughs> All he has to do is keep Thordis from finding out that he's been writing poetry about Thorbjörg Kolbrow. 
Which shouldn't be a problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the only way she could ever find out would be if Iceland had an effective and efficient gossip grapevine. But, <laughs> I mean, what are the chances of that ever happening? Oh, well, she knows, doesn't she? Yeah, of course she knows. Yeah, when Thormod arrives at her farm, uh, Grima makes a big show of greeting him. Yeah, it's, uh, it's almost like she didn't want him dead. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no point on dwelling on the past, John. Uh-huh. But uh, Thordis is much less enthusiastic about seeing Thormod. She says, So, I hear you've got a new love, and that you've composed a poem in praise of her. Uh, um, <laughs> who is this love I'm supposed to have composed poems for? Uh, Thorbjorg at Arnadala. What? No, no! It's a lie and a slander to say I wrote poetry about Thorbjorg. The truth is, I, I did write poetry while at their farm, but it was in praise of you. Because I realized how much more beautiful and courteous you are than she is. Uh-huh. That's actually why I came here, to present those verses to you. Oh, Thormod. That is some top-grade fertilizer right there. And, and hopefully yeah, hopefully listeners a- <laughs> start to realize why we separated the Thorgare and Thormod episode at this point. <laughs> Very different stories. They just don't fit together. Uh, yeah, no, this is uh, this is bullshit from only the finest bulls. Yeah, uh, this is a, a new category of saga figure. It's the warrior poet liar. <laughs> uh, Thormod's a talented guy, uh, and regardless of how we might judge his behavior morally, I got to give him his due. He's he's pretty quick witted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recites all the verses on the spot, but then alters them on the fly so they become praises of Thordis. And that works, or at least it works for now, yeah. uh, because Thordis <laughs> is flattered by these beautiful poems, and, and she returns to treating Thormod rather well. And they're not quite back to the intimate terms that they were on before, but they're friendly, and she's warming to him as time goes on. Right. Now, unfortunately for Thormod, she's not the only person who hears things. <laughs> the grapevine works in multiple directions. One night... Thormod's sleep is interrupted when Thorbjörg Kolbrow appears to him. Ah, so she just... Uh, no, no, it's a, it's, it's a dream. It's, of course. It's a dream. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, she's not walking into the house and going from bed to bed to find him, putting her cold hand no. on his leg. No, no, she visits him in a dream. Uh, and that's important to understand because the, the first question she asks him is... Uh, actually, wait a second. Uh, you're doing her voice, right? Um, I, I, I don't think I did her voice at all, but... Uh, if you think it's... Sure, yes, I can... Uh, she says something like, Thormod, are you awake or asleep? <laughs> Wait, what is this voice? That's like... That's her voice. She's... Uh, ah, what? No. No? What? What is this voice you're doing? It's kind of like... It's my, it's, there? it's my version of Kevin McDonald. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. As a woman. As a no, woman, that's obviously. Not what, from that's Kids not what in the Kevin Hall. McDonald sounds like as a woman at all. You Have you... Have you seen Kids in the Hall? Of course I have. I grew up on it. Oh, oh my now. god. That's 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 a um let's let's avoid that voice. That, <laughs> fine. I do not fine. accept that as Thor as uh, Thorberg's voice. Is it isn't it's it's kind of like uh Minnie if she was a drug addict, kind of <laughs> Right. No, it's 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 Minnie if she set an attack, yes. <laughs> all right. Let's not She's, all right, okay, I'll try again. Uh something a little bit more serious is what you're looking for. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Okay. A little more uh, uh, breathy, or a little more deep and sinister. Yeah, no, I want I want Marilyn Monroe singing "Happy Birthday" to JFK. That's what I want. 
No, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> All right. You're just going to take what I give you, okay? Great. All right. Make work your magic. Yeah. Thorbjorg appears in the dream and says, oh. Thormod, are you awake or asleep? Uh, I'm awake, obviously. Wrong, dummy. You're asleep. <laughs> wow. But everything that happens to you now will take place once you are awake. Thormod, what have you done? Oh. Did you give another woman the poems you wrote about me? That, that, that isn't true. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thormod's entire strategy when it comes to getting caught in a lie is just deny, deny, deny. Yep. Like shaggy level, it wasn't me, denial. <laughs> shaggy a vampire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I turned Shaggy into a vampire. And also, why do you know Shaggy? I mean, get to know me, man. I, I got layers. I, 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 oh, I don't oh, yeah, yeah. Turn my yeah, nose up at Shaggy. I, well, layers. correct me if I'm wrong, John, but didn't uh, didn't Shaggy get played at your wedding? Uh, <laughs> at the reception? Yeah, Angel. Yeah, it was a 2005. Angel, not... No, no, Angel. It was 2005. It was a strange time. Well, I mean, well, I, first of all, you chose the wrong song. But uh, for the record... I, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You think I chose every song at my wedding reception? Well, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I'm a micromanager, Andy, but there's a limit. Okay. Well, for the record, uh, Dream Thorbjörg isn't buying what Thormod's selling. She says... <laughs> it is true that you gave the poetry in praise of me to Thordis, daughter of Grima. And altered what you composed about me because you're a cowardly little man and dared not tell the truth about who you had written them for. You're an unoriginal hack, Thormod. <laughs> now I will repay you for your treachery and lies. Uh-oh. See, this is why it's dangerous to get between two widow witches and their daughters. <laughs> she says... You will experience such great and terrible pain in your eyes that it will seem as if they are about to burst from their sockets unless you publicly admit that you betrayed me and gave my poem to another woman. You will never be well again unless you remove those verses that you have turned to Thordis' praise and return them to what you wrote for me. And you shall never again dedicate them to anyone Except the one for whom they were intended. There are some great lines there. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the way, cowardly little man is a, it's a really nice encapsulation of how this whole situation has left Thormod looking kind of less than honorable and rather two-faced in his dealings with women. I mean, that's a fair assessment of who and what he is. <laughs> yes, yes, mm -hmm. definitely. Uh, and both of those would be seen as negatively impacting his manliness. So calling him a puny coward underlines both grounds for impugning his masculinity. Yeah. Uh, by the way, another thing is that reading this shortly after we've covered Barth Saga adds another level to this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen that dream figures who threaten to destroy your eyes, uh, they might not be making empty threats. Uh, if you recall, <laughs> that's how Barth's son Guest died. Right, not empty threats, but empty sockets. Uh, <laughs> this is exactly how he died. Uh, eyes popping out of his head and everything. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, apologies to anyone who's eating grapes while listening to this. Uh, the the symptoms here, by the way, uh, they seem like 
uh, magically induced migraine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they could sound like a migraine, sure. But here it's a magical assault, mm-hmm. right? as though the eyes exploding from Thormod's face is a real possibility. Yeah. And Barth provides us with the context for understanding how the saga author is able to present this as a legitimate threat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a line from a Lars Lonworth article that I've always liked from moments like this. Uh, he says, uh, even though something like uh, e- even those who value the realistic mode of the sagas to the exclusion of everything else have had to admit that these these sober stories about farming, feuds, and family life contain mythic elements like dreams, which seem to undermine the desire for realism in the narrative. Like fathers or scorned lovers showing up and eye-gouging people in their dreams. Something like that? Well, yeah, something like that. Uh, the thing is, and this is long with this larger point, I think, the sagas are often using these elements as a literary device, right? They're, they're a way of foreshadowing something that's to come in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like uh, those prophetic dreams that you love so much, right? Yeah. Uh, no, but this is the other kind of dream. This is the supernatural at work in the world, mm-hmm. and it it doesn't fit neatly into our explanations of reality. It tells a different kind of true story. In some ways, one that's less true. You know what I mean. I do. Uh, it's it's reality is partly based on attention to a karmic or ethical truth, rather than being strictly answerable to the possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we we we've all had dreams, right, that speak to something of our experience or our emotional state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I I myself have dreams frequently where. I am trying to get somewhere or I am looking for something and it is missing. And that always, always tells me that I have some kind of deadline, some kind of thing that had to be done or or needs to be done. And maybe I'm getting too close to that deadline or maybe I'm past that deadline. So uh, I, I think that the sagas through dreams like this, and this is a great example of the use of dreams in, in literature. Um, it, it speaks to this this kind of feeling that a that 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 Thormod has about something yeah. that he's done that he feels guilty about. It, it speaks to his experience, and indeed, dreams are part of human experience. And therefore, yeah. is this a is this really a break with reality, or is this is this something that that's real? Right. No. I mean, it's 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 quite human to seek narrative, right? To seek yeah. a sort of satisfactory conclusion to an experience. And that often flies in the face of our real experience, right? Your frustration with un- with injustice that goes unpunished. Uh, yeah. Your frustration with uh, uh, interactions with other people that never come to a satisfactory conclusion, right? That, that dreams are where you seek resolution, where you seek conclusion. Mm-hmm. And the sagas uh, acknowledge that, right? That dreams are where, through the supernatural, uh, sort of karmic resolution can occur. Uh, yeah. I think that's... There's a reality to that that isn't about the historical reality of, you know, experiences that can be documented. It's about the reality of how we think about our lives rather than our actual lives. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I, dreams like this always excite me because I think they mm-hmm. do speak to something uh, of, of day-to-day life for a human mm-hmm. being. Um, but there's there's another thing that I think we should draw attention to. Um, yeah. it, 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 it's an echo of the a theme that we drew attention to a little bit earlier, um, which is the fact that Thorbjorg is another strong woman in this saga. She's not yeah. just firm of character. She's not just threatening violent revenge, but actually she's kind of physically attacking a man who's mistreated her and behaved 
dishonorably towards sure. her. She makes a real threat to assault Thormod, and it, she, she makes that threat in a dream, but she's able to follow through on it. Right. Now, albeit she's doing it with magic, but still, I mean, she's Freddy Kruegering him in a way that's <laughs> undeniably intimidating. She, so she's she's some kind of uh, uh, dream warrior. She's dream warrior. Wow. Him. We're going to go straight to dream warrior. Um, well, of course. Yeah, no, I think technically speaking, the dream warriors were the ones who were fighting Freddy. No, no, but I, I obviously she's not, uh, John, she's not Freddy Krueger. She's she's a dream warrior who who took control I mean. of the dream. She, <laughs> If you remember the movie, uh, it's one of my favorites of the mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street series. Mm-hmm. They, the dream warriors took control of the dreams and were able to fight back against Freddy Krueger. Right. That's so you're the claiming talent. she's the heroin addicted punk girl. Is that what you're going for? <laughs> uh, not, I mean, if that works for you, yes, that that's fine. I mean, it's not works for me. I'm trying to make sense out of it because she is <laughs> Freddy Krueger, right? She's the one attacking him through his dreams, and then it comes true in reality. Sure. Uh, I mean, you can you we can interpret it any way you want, but uh, at John, least we agree. Of- if we can agree, at least we agree that the Dream Warriors film. Uh, number three is the best one. Oh, uh, it's it's undoubtedly the very best one, and I think yeah. I I don't remember John when that that particular film came out, but I know that I I saw it in the theater, and I mm-hmm. I'm guessing you I was the something theater? like I saw it in the theater. I'm guessing I was something like nine years old. I don't I know. Saying, it was like mid to late eighties. Uh, hang on yeah. a second here. Yeah, my dad would. While well, you looked that up, my my dad would. Uh, he knew that I liked horror movies because he mm-hmm. he found me downstairs one night when I was like five, watching some alligator movie. I believe it was called Alligator, where an alligator <laughs> was just. He he came downstairs and I had wandered downstairs and turned the TV on and I was real little and uh, he saw I was just watching alligators eat people, um, mm-hmm. and so he's As like, one this guy likes <laughs> horror movies. So he would end up taking me to like things like RoboCop and Nightmare on Elm Street movies when they would come out. Jeez, um, God for bless. most of my life, and mm-hmm. that's a real fond memory for me. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors was released in 1987. So you would have been nine years old. Yep, I would have been nine years old, and you were in your twenties uh, or thirties. Yeah, thank you very much. I was 15, <laughs> 15. Uh, and I believe I snuck into this film. Did you really? Uh, I, I must have. I mean, it would have been rated R, right? Yeah, yeah. That one's that one's definitely uh, rated and R. Yeah, um, the, the, I definitely, I definitely uh, uh, sidled my way into that one. Oh, well, what a uh, great f- work of that's that's cinema at its finest, right there. You know, now that I'm looking at this uh, and having looked it up, um, I didn't have 1987 at my fingertips. Obviously, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at this cast. This is an impressive cast of characters. Uh, well, who's who's in it? I mean, obviously, you've got I, I Robert remember. England, right? Uh, Freddy yeah. Krueger, uh, the one yeah. and only. Uh, mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp, who played Nancy Thompson in the first film, is back yeah. in this it one. It was nice that she was back, a return. Uh, but they've also got, um, you've got Patricia Arquette is in this thing. Who is, uh, I don't remember her being in that, but okay. Lawrence Fishburne is in no this. No way. I, <laughs> I've got to rewatch this. Uh, uh, John Saxon, who, you know, uh, famous character actor, played villains yeah, yeah. in every film of the 70s and 80s. I don't know if he's in, in all of them, but he's in quite a few of the uh, Freddy Krueger movies. Uh, yeah. Dick Cavett and Zsa, Zsa Gabor in cameos. I, I th- Those are just cameos. I don't think that's worth saying, like, oh, look at them. <laughs> I mean, look, you don't just, you don't just, like, book Zsa, Zsa. You gotta, there's well, a lot John's, of work involved in booking Zsa, Zsa. I'm gonna ask you a serious question here. Yeah. Since when is mm-hmm. having Zsa, Zsa Gabor in a movie a marker of its high quality? I'm just saying it's an impressive range of faces and names that they managed to get into this thing. Is it now? 
Okay, well, I, you I go ahead agree. and think that. I actually remember because there's a scene. I remember that scene where it's uh, Dick Cavett interviewing Jaja Gabor in somebody's dream. Yeah. And then Freddy Krueger, like, sort of gets involved. Uh, but what a film. I, I, I can say this film is probably the film that most informed my nightmares. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Uh, Not your musical later on. There's a couple of scenes in there. I mean, it's a you know it's a fun film, but there's a couple of scenes in there that I'm not going to describe in detail because they're kind of grotesque. Uh, but there are things that are really disturbing uh, mm. in that film. Uh, it, it definitely. I feel like we need to watch that again. Uh, maybe you and I should meet on uh, now that we've discovered the wonders of yep. Discord. Uh, we can maybe meet on, on Discord and, and that'd be watch a lot of fun, that. actually. Uh, that do could a live be live cool. watch of Dream Warriors. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I might, um, have to, I might have to look away at one moment though. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, um, going back to the saga, uh, the the dream that uh, Thormod is having, um, it's it's really kind of a. I'm going to try to fold it back in by saying it's a, a waking nightmare scenario. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Well, when, when Thormod wakes up, his eyes are so, so painful, so massively painful that he can't mm. sleep the rest of the night. And he barely avoids screaming out in pain. And mm. in the morning, it's so painful that he can't rise from bed. And eventually his father realizes that he hasn't gotten up and he, he asks whether he's sick or something. Yeah, or something. Uh, Thormod even with his eyes throbbing and prostrate in pain, uh, manages to respond, of course, with a verse. Good for him. Grievously I erred when I bestowed on Thordis, maiden of the Ring of Islands, all of the Colbrow verses. In a dream, Doom's goddess came to me. I took the punishment she dealt. Thor's splendid daughter is versed in those wily arts, and uh, I would rather make amends with that goddess. He really doesn't hold out very long, does he? <laughs> no. Um, I, and I'm as I'm reading that, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether that came across as tremendous eye pain or constipated. But uh, <laughs> it's possibly definitely both. uncomfortable. It, uncomfortable is the point. That, that's right. Yes, yes. Well, Bercy's response to this is perfect. He says, these women of yours are no good for you, you know. <laughs> One gives you such a bad wound, you'll never recover from it. And now, you can probably expect that your eyes will soon burst from their sockets. <laughs> you must alter the verses back to their original state and rededicate them to Thorbjörg Kolbrow. And there's Bercy's entry for best uh, best line in the film. Yeah, the that's a good uh, one. Best, uh, best notable wisdom. Uh, wow. Uh, these women of yours are no good for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's exactly what Thormod does. Um, he doesn't really have a choice. Uh, he gathers witnesses, admits his wrong, and officially rededicates the verses to Thorbjörg. Yeah. yeah. And eventually, his eyes start to improve, and he's able to recover from the pain in his head. Well, well, well how does Thordis feel about all this? Um, she I'm, quite liked those verses, if I recall. She did. Uh, she's not best pleased now, although she no. sort of drops out of the narrative at this point. She because certainly does, yeah. Their relationship, I think we can now say, is probably at an end. And Thordis is now out of the saga. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's about this time that Thorgair shows up at Thormod's door from out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. he's got a shifty-eyed thief named Veglag with him. 
and he's sporting some new scars from a spear wound that he he got to the belly mm-hmm. and he's he's looking more wild-eyed than ever john yeah, it's a moment for the two sworn brothers to size each other up after what what ends up being nearly a decade apart. Yeah. Uh, the saga, you know, as sagas often do, kind of jumps around in time a little bit. And it's easy to keep track, to lose track of the fact that these guys have been apart for almost a decade. Um, yeah. Now, the reunion of these two means that we've kind of returned to the problem that broke them up. Yeah, you mean the question of who'd win a fight? I, sort of, uh, but it goes beyond that. Uh Gareth Lloyd Evans talks about Thorger and Thormod in his book on men and masculinities in the sagas of Icelanders. That's the that's the title, by the way. It's an interesting read. Uh, he calls Thorger and Thormod an example of dyadic instability. Uh, in other words, a two-person partnership that doesn't rest on a stable or fully defined relationship. Their, rela- their friendship is permanently under strain because of the felt need to know which one of them is the dominant figure. Yeah, something I have lived since 2013, at least. Well, I think we've already established uh, who the dominant figure is here, Andy. Yeah, I think uh, we have. I think we have, we're John. Not, we're not going to state I think it we have, John. I think we have. Yes, I agree. I, I agree. <laughs> we definitely we determined who's the man here. Uh, I think no, so, I think, too. I think, but I think so the, too. I think the, uh, the best thing for us to do is exactly what uh, Thormod prefers, which is not to establish the dominant figure. That's what Thormod would say, yes. Uh, and they, like you, they avoid the question whenever possible. <laughs> now, on, on multiple occasions when they are asked who leads their group, uh, they avoid answering, which makes sense. Yeah, and it's not just that they worry about this. Everyone seems to want to understand who calls the shots in their partnership, right? who the dominant figure is. Uh, and when they can't avoid answering entirely, they just give both names. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, when they went to Ingolf and Thorbrand's farm to kill them for harassing Sigurfjöth, yeah, uh, Ingolf asks who the Foringi, the the leader singular of the group, is. But Thorger responds, "Well, if you've heard of Thorger Haverson and Thormod Bersason, now you can see them." <laughs> there you go, nice dodge. Although, I mean, honestly, they were going to kill Ingolf in about 30 seconds. So clearly his opinion mm. about their relationship eh, wasn't going to weigh all that heavily with them. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but as we've been saying, that question hung over them in their own minds. Right? Yeah. Who is number one? Yeah. Like, uh, and when Thorgir finally brought it up, Thormod recognized that it was the only thing that could destroy their partnership. Exactly. And he fled. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. now that they're back in contact, that question is still hanging in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Saga thing with Andy and John. Yeah. Again, I think it's best that we just let that one hang. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's at least partly fueled by Thorgair's need to prove himself, uh, to prove to himself over and over again that he's the toughest, he's the strongest, he's the scariest Viking on the fjord. Exactly, yeah. And uh, and Thormod's a warrior with a brain. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's a weaselly brain that lies a fair amount. Yeah. But he's a smart man, and he's much more given to interiority than Thorger. Mm-hmm. He can't stop from calculating, and his calculation is that Thorger is becoming dangerous to spend time around. And those characteristics mean that even though they're reunited, they'll still have to keep their distance from one another. Yeah, right up until one of them gets killed. Yep. Uh, all mm-hmm. right. Uh, are we done? Are we, do we have time for a question or two, or are we done? Oh, yeah. No, I think we have time. Um, And that's a nice spot to stop on the question of which one of them gets killed. Um, But, 
yeah, why don't we uh, save that Again, for next time? These, yeah, these 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 false cliffhangers. Uh, That's right. <laughs> right. Just read ahead like three chapters, guys. You'll find out who dies. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, but for now, why don't we uh, why don't we dig into the listener rune sack and see what has floated to the surface? Great. Can we have a metaphor <laughs> that sounds less like a cesspit? Maybe a, a stew. It could be a stew. Maybe a, a gumbo. Maybe I'm close to. All right. New Orleans uh, now. What is the so. what does the listener gumbo have for us today? <laughs> well, John, we have uh, an email from Tyler. Um, he sent it back in April. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it came on April Fool's Day, so I'm not sure if this is a joke or not. But uh, he apparently likes what we do here. It must be a joke. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's probably the joke. Um, but anyway, he says that he's been li- listening to the podcast while at work and. He is, he's worked his way through Njol, and um, he's probably finished with that by now. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully, he is. Um, it was a long one. Don't pressure him. No, no. Uh, but he he's already got a degree, um, but he, he's interested in medieval history, uh, especially that of Scandinavia and the British Isles. And because of this ridiculous podcast called Saga Thing, he's been thinking about how he might be able to get into medieval studies. And as okay. such, he's got a few questions. And since... You know, I'll be honest, Tyler, if you're listening to this, if you've caught up and you're with us now, um, we we got your email back in April and we've we just been thinking about how to answer it and whether we should answer it in email format or bring it onto the show or maybe create a, you, you asked a lot of questions. So there could, could we do a special episode to address your questions? Um, but I think what we're going to do is we're going to answer just a couple now and we'll save a couple for another time and kind of work our way through some of the questions that you ask. Cause I think they're, yeah. they're interesting and they're things that other people might be wondering as well. So sure. uh, John, what do you say? We want to answer a couple questions from uh, Tyler. Great. Yeah. Let's do a couple, a couple this time, maybe a couple next time. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, Great. so he has a, you know, he says a few questions. There's more than a few, but um, we'll start with just a, a couple here. Um, the first one he asked was, "What classes do the two of you typically teach in a semester?" Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, well, hi Tyler. Um, so in a typical, I would say in a typical year, um, I teach several sections of the British literature pre 1800 survey at my university. Uh, that cutoff point, by the way, uh, was clearly established by somebody who is interested in modern literature. Absolutely. Uh, trying to trying to teach English literature from what essentially amounts to bead uh, up to 1798 uh, is clearly an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they make was, us go beyond Milton's Paradise Lost is... Yeah, exactly. Is Milton ridiculous. is clearly the correct stopping point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1670, I believe, is when you place that. 1667. Uh, the yeah, the placement 1798 is clearly so that people who teach modern literature can claim Jane Austen, but we get everything before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I would say I resent that, but uh, let's just say that the 18th century gets rather short shrift in my courses. Yeah. Uh, so I teach several sections of that. I'll teach uh, a course for people who are going to teach literature. Uh, I teach uh, the history of the English language quite a lot. Uh, and then I teach a series of upper level courses on medieval literature, on different critical approaches to literature, and to my great delight, an occasional course on the sagas. Yeah. What about yeah. you, Andy? Uh, almost exactly the same. Um, 
my primary job with the English department here at uh, the University of Mississippi is to teach those survey courses. So mm-hmm. um, I'll teach 221 or 225. So I'll either do the um, world literature up to 1650 or the Britlet one, which is all the British literature up to 1800, uh, which is just an exhausting kind of timeline, as you suggested. Ridiculous. Um, but it's I also teach... Uh, 1400 years in 14 weeks. Yeah. I also teach the occasional um, upper level class. I also teach uh, introduction to literary theory, introduction to literary studies, um, things like that. So you kind of have to, you know, in teaching um, at a university, uh, you, you do have a, even while you have a special, a specialization, um, you have a broad range of things that you, mm-hmm. you kind of need to teach to be, I don't know if I want to say successful, uh, but to keep your head above water. Um, you got to have a, right. a broad range of things that you're able to teach. Uh, but yeah, more about the- that uh, shortly. The last time I uh, the last time I counted, uh, I had taught uh, thirty different courses at at my university mm-hmm. uh, in in a dozen years, and now it's been two more years than that. So I'm probably at uh, thirty one or thirty two now. Yeah, uh, it's a you know it's a lot. It's a you, you do end up kind of teaching a lot of different subjects and a lot of different courses because uh, you know if you're teaching full time, uh, you need to teach what the university needs from you any given semester. And so yes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's much less about, you know, sort of pursuing whatever rabbit Warren we're, we're uh, chasing at any given moment and much more right. about what the the needs of the students are. Well, and, and I recently took the position of the director of interdisciplinary studies program or major here. And with that, uh, I redesigned the program and introduced uh, an introductory course and also a capstone course. I've designed those courses and I'll be teaching those courses. So that's going to take up a lot of my time. Um, I also designed a course, uh, a capstone course for multidisciplinary studies. And I'll be teaching that for the first time um, this coming fall. That's going to take up a lot of my time. I think I'm going to be teaching a lot less English literature, a lot less medieval stuff, just by the nature of the way my position has evolved and the administrative responsibilities that I've taken on. So uh, I think, you know, we, we come in as medievalists and we, we grow um, as the university grows and we grow with the positions we take and the responsibilities we take on. Um, so that, you know, it, it varies, depends on what's going on in a given yeah. year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another been, question. I think I've been, I think I've been very fortunate in that I get to teach mostly uh, early literature, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, you have to be available for anything. I mean, I've taught rhetoric and composition many times at my university because that's mm-hmm. what was needed that semester. Yeah, certainly. Um, and at Kent State, I obviously, I, I taught a lot of, of composition courses. Um, but uh, how about another question uh, from sure. from Tyler? He said, uh, sure. number two, uh, what classes would, so remember he's interested in becoming a medievalist or experimenting with medieval um, studies as a, as a major. Um, he wants to know what classes would you recommend taking for medieval studies? And I think we, maybe hmm. the place to start with that, and we did talk about this a little bit on our um, our guest appearance with Fate of the Norns um, last week um, would be to define what it is to be a medieval studies major, uh, whether at the undergraduate or graduate level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Andy and I both uh, graduated, as we've mentioned many times in this uh, podcast, from the same program. Right? We met each other in grad school. Uh, that program is at the University of Connecticut, uh, and it's an interdisciplinary uh, degree in medieval studies. Mm-hmm. What that means is that for us, uh, studying the Middle Ages meant studying medieval literature, but then also studying medieval history, medieval art, medieval languages, uh, medieval philosophy, and so on. Uh, most people who study medieval literature will do so within an English degree. And so their context for their study will usually be 
literature before and after, right? Renaissance literature, late antique literature, and so on. Uh, so it's about studying sort of literature lengthwise, its influences and its origins, rather than um, what we do, which is to study its contexts. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, it, that's not the only way to approach the literature. And, you know, there are people doing great work who have had both backgrounds. Uh, but that just happens to be the background that we came from. That's right. Um, and th- if the question is what classes would you recommend taking for medieval studies, um, <clears throat> I would say if you're looking for an introduction to it, um, the place that I started, and I would recommend you start in the same place, is with languages. So, for example, um, I started my my fascination with uh, Anglo-Saxon England, began when I took a course with David Johnson at Florida State University uh, in Old English. Um, and I followed that from Old English into a Beowulf class where you translate uh, Beowulf for a semester. Um, and that's where you learn the culture, you learn a little bit of the history, um, and you learn the language. That's the best possible introduction. My fascination with Old Norse is the same. Um, my fascination with the sagas comes from taking an Old Norse course and through the Old Norse course being introduced to the culture and the literature of medieval Iceland. So for me, the place to start is language. Right. And this is going to get to why it's always a mistake to ask two academics an answer to a question because the answers will never be the same. Uh, my approach was through history. Uh, I was a history major as an undergraduate. Uh, that was my primary interest. Uh, and it remained kind of the lens that I studied literature through. Uh, and so for me, uh, what interested me was the historical context for the things I was reading. Uh, language was a tool I needed to pick up along the way in order to understand that literature more fully. But the fascination with historical contexts, with time and place is what brought me to medieval studies. Yeah. So I don't think there is just one way to approach these things, but my way is obviously right. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, history is absolutely one of the, the central pieces to everything that John and I do. Um, we do talk a lot about literary uh, analyses and metaphor and structure and all that kind of stuff. But at the core, what John and I are both most interested in is is the historical context within which these sagas fit. Um, that That's key. And we, far, we read far more books and articles um, that are historical or from historians than we do from literary scholars, probably. That would be my guess. Yeah, and I would say, um, you know, to to move to a related field, uh, writers often talk about this. Um, if you want to write in a field, if you want to write science fiction, for example, you don't just read science fiction, right? You read very broadly in order to be able to bring new things to science fiction, so that you're not merely iterating on things that have already been done. Uh, and I I find that that's that informs my approach to medieval studies. Right? Mm-hmm. I want to read as broadly as I can, as widely as I can not just read the things that already speak to what I'm interested in and know, but to look at things that might not immediately seem relevant or might not immediately seem uh, directly connected, which is how I got involved with disability studies, for example. It's not, a, it's not a field that automatically spoke as being relevant to the sagas, but as soon as you read the sagas and then read disability studies, the connections become obvious. Right? The, the number of injured uh, people and maimed bodies in the sagas uh, make for an obvious subject of study. Uh, but, you know, in 2007, eight, uh, when I started reading this, there's only really one uh, or two publications out there on the subject. Mm-hmm. So, you know, reading multiple disciplines and then sort of synthesizing those in your own thinking 
that's really kind of, you know, I think that's the healthiest way to approach any subject is to, mm. to look as broadly as you can for things to influence you. Yeah, that's right. Um, th- this ties into his third question, which is what sort of advice would you give to someone who is looking at working within medieval studies? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so, yeah, I mean, number one, everything I said in the last 30 seconds, uh, you know, Absolutely. read broadly, read widely, uh, be, don't be afraid to bring uh, things into your work that don't seem obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you're only reading things that come up when you do a, a, a document search for three keywords for your scholarship, uh, you're probably not reading widely enough. Right? You need yeah. to um, think about how to read things or how to find things that might be not immediately useful, but might inform a thought that you're going to have down the road. Yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, also really practically speaking, um, if I'm giving advice to someone who's approaching me about working within medieval studies, I would say uh, you need need to look at the job market. Um, Go ahead and go to higheredjobs.com and and check out what jobs are available for people with medieval studies backgrounds, whether that's medieval history or medieval literature. Um, One of the things you're going to find is that there's not that many out there. And even within that job market, um, people who are lucky enough to get those jobs, uh, English departments are shrinking. Um, and that, that's certainly something to pay attention to. Um, so right. what is it that you are setting yourself up to do? And what other skills do you bring to the table that can allow you to play with the things that you love while at the same time maintaining, um, uh, maintaining a job, maintaining um, economic viability? Um, so you can survive and support a family, buy a house, all those things that come with being an adult. Right. <laughs> adult in, in scare quotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, when I went on the job market in 2006, 2007, uh, there were single digit jobs in medieval studies. Um, you know, And I guarantee you, I was not one of the eight most qualified people on the market that year. Um, there's a certain amount of, uh, good luck involved, not just, not just the kind of, oh, you know, I got lucky, uh, but in terms of what's in the market that year, you know, what people are looking for that year, the year you go out, uh, what people are looking for the following year, if you don't find something the first time, uh, it's, you know, and that doesn't have anything to do with how competent you are, how well, uh, uh, informed you are about your subject. Uh, that's about, you know, what people need on the market right now. Yeah. Uh, I don't recommend building your career around marketability. That's 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 chasing a ghost, right? Because that will change year by year. Uh, because there are so few jobs that year by year it will change vastly. Um, so I think mainly understand that going into a field like medieval studies means doing it for the love of the field, and not assuming that it will be uh, something that you make a living at. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound harsh. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm cognizant every day of how fortunate I am that I'm a working medievalist. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, there are many, many very qualified people who are working uh, excellent jobs outside of academia who are also medievalists, uh, you know, and but are so dedicated, they find time to do that work around and outside of other things that they're doing to make a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm quite fortunate that I don't have to find that extra time. I could spend my extra time doing something like creating a podcast uh, because, you know, that's 
because my actual day job is to teach this literature that I love. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's, you know, a lot of people who are very qualified and have taken degrees uh, and are doing work in uh, the fields of uh, museum creation, librarians, uh, people who are uh, working jobs anywhere in the public sector and are doing uh, displays at the local library or are uh, creating uh, uh, books for children about the sagas uh, or about uh, whatever subject they, they follow. There's, there's tremendous work being produced by people who um, are not working as academics. And that's because, you know, people who do this job tend to love it. People yeah. who study the subject tend to love it. And regardless of what career they follow, they tend to want to keep doing it. So if you want to do this, you should absolutely do it. If you can think of anything else to do that's more likely to get you a job, by all means, <laughs> yeah. go do it. But if this is the thing you love, do it and... Keep an eye open for whatever career path opens up for you. That's right. Yeah. And I would just add to that. Um, there are kind of two paths that you can go on with a degree in medieval studies. And one of them is um, certainly ac very academic in nature. It's a, a tenure track job writing articles and and creating new knowledge. Um, and there, that's a, a beautiful thing to do. Um, it requires long hours of studying and writing um, and uh, trying to get blood from stones. Um, and another <laughs> is is a, a somewhat more social um, engagement, which is teaching. Um, and obviously, there's a blend between the two, um, but there's usually either a, a teaching track or a, an academic uh, scholarly track. Mm -hmm. um, and I've shifted over to more of the teaching track. And John also um, is far more of a of a teacher. Um, he chose a, a, a career in teaching primarily um, and public outreach, which we do with this, with this podcast. It's, these are things that are very important to, to us. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's kind of the path that we, we have chosen uh, and we love it very, very much. And we get paid to do something that we love. Um, yep. So our, our, our degrees have paid off in ways that uh, are, are very, very much worthwhile. So there's, there's a lot of joy to be had um, through all of it. And I think, you know, ultimately the decision about whether or not to pursue uh, the study of, of medieval literature or, or advanced degrees in medieval literature shouldn't come down to whether or not you think it's going to get you a lucrative career. Because yes. no. it's not going to do that. No, it won't um, do that. But essentially, you know, for me, and I've said this to my students many times, if I weren't um, going to work every day and talking about this stuff, I would be Cliff Clavin. Right. I would be the guy in a bar somewhere uh, haranguing people about uh, late medieval literature and whether or not sagas are historical or not, uh, whether we can think about the monsters of Beowulf as having any kind of Christian overtones. Uh, well, these are the kinds of things I would be spending time talking about in bars and, and becoming now, uh, very unpopular in doing so. As we speak, John, in uh, just a couple of days, uh, the, uh, the Green Knight movie comes out, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Oh, with God, Dev Patel, I I I, uh, I can't wait to have a conversation with you about that because you uh, <laughs> we both love the text. You teach it. Yes. I I almost I never do. teach that one because I don't want to hurt my students. <laughs> oh God, no! I love the teaching that text. It's a wonderful. I, text I know you do, uh, but we disagree um, on that. But however, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this say, movie plays out. Yeah, I will say that film wise, they're going to go a long way to replace Sword of the Valiant in my heart. Uh, which is the, <laughs> the 1984, I believe, film 
uh, about Sir Gowan the Green Knight, uh, starring Sean Connery and Miles O'Keefe. Yeah, not great uh, stuff. So, oh, now, I mean, only for a given value of great stuff. Yes, uh, yeah. You know, speaking as a lifelong MST3K fan, uh, I would say that Sword <laughs> of the Valiant is a fine film worthy of your attention. Well, I know uh, uh, but, next time you and I get together in person, John, I know what we're watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's gonna we be can great. find a copy. I don't even know if it's available on DVD. Uh, you'll find um, it. You found. Uh, yeah, we'll find it somewhere. That that one Beowulf movie. I think you can find <laughs> Sword of the Valiant. <laughs> All right, now we're inside baseballing. Uh, yeah. The 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 brief version, if we can go back and maybe edit out some of our nonsense, uh, is um, this is a it's a rewarding uh, field for reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not you can make a living at it. And mm-hmm. if you're you know if you're willing to study something for love rather than for money, uh, it's worth doing. Uh, but it's, you know, you have to go into it with your eyes open in terms of the job prospects, which are pretty grim. Yeah. Yeah, they are. All right. I think that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, I got to get up and teach in the morning. Speaking of our jobs. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to say before we go? Uh, no. Well, we should mention that we were recently guests on another show. I, I hinted oh, at right. that uh, a moment ago. Yeah, John and I sat in on the Fate of the Norns Twitch stream last week, and we had a great conversation with Andrew and Aaron about sagas and storytelling and ghost seals and... Uh, steampunk Vikings. And steampunk Vikings and role-playing games and beard battles and, and all kinds rock. of stuff. Poop rock. Yeah, it's always a good time when we get to talk about poop rock. Yes, the yeah. interview is available on their Twitch channel. That is uh, Fate of the Norns. You can find it there. And, and since it's uh-huh. a video, you can watch John drink beer from his Saga Thing mug for the entire interview. <laughs> that was a good beer. Was it? That was a good interview, too, but it was a really good stout. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a uh, link up in the show notes for anyone who isn't sick of listening to us yet. Uh, and maybe... Wants the disappointment of seeing us talk. That's <laughs> a tragedy in itself. Uh, but uh, Fate of the Norns uh, produces some beautiful art and merch for fans of the sagas. Um, they create role-playing games um, that are set in a kind of Viking saga slash mythology world. Um, really worth checking out. Uh, you might want to poke around a bit after the interview on their website. Right. I mean, or during. We're not, we're not telling you what to do. Um I would appreciate it, though, if you would maybe uh, cut out a picture of, say, George Clooney and maybe tape it over the part of the screen where my face appears. Uh, okay. And I'll be find some more uh, rewarding get a, experience that way. Yeah. You can get a nice picture of Susan Sarandon and put it up there where, where my face is. I feel like you're an Owen Wilson type. Mm, I don't think so. But, you know, <laughs> Owen Wilson in Loki? Sure. I can go, I can do that. Uh, wow. So we... Now we'd like to uh, we'd like to hear from you about Thormod's misadventures or about the sagas in general. Uh, let us know whether Thormod or Thorgir is the better protagonist or the worst sailor. Yes. Uh, and how does that work, Andy? Well, you can you can reach out to us on Facebook where we are Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. We are also on Instagram if you feel the need for visuals, um, and that's where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Or go ahead and send us an email. Why don't you? At sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and I mean, if none of that works out, uh, see if Stormfield is willing to read out your question on the evening news. Maybe claim it's a birthday surprise for someone turning 100. Uh, my understanding is that, that usually works. Um, John, if he's not dead, he's at least retired by now. <laughs> you think that's the biggest problem with that scenario? 
<laughs> All right, that's gonna that's gonna do it for now. Uh, we will be back soon with the fourth part, which is really the third part of False Brother Saga. <laughs> Bye for now. superficial standards of beauty andy uh, look are not my, what we're my using standards here. of beauty and the saga standards of beauty might she's be very, very intelligent different. she's intelligent dark haired with a good complexion and a slim build i mean that's that's a good woman hang on a second i gotta just check something hey wendy I'm not starting the laundry, don't worry. can you uh stand up straight for me let me see your feet let me see no no no, she's <laughs> she's not splay footed at all. There, that's... facing straight forward like a goddess. <laughs> oh lordy, um, we're gonna cut. I hope all of this. <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. <laughs>